Our sermon text this morning is from Luke 22, 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I could think of no better way uh, to introduce uh, this sermon than with a quote uh, from that noted uh, theologian of the 20th century, Daffy Duck, who, uh, after turning Bugs Bunny over to the abominable snowman in order to save his own skin, if, you have, if you're familiar with the tale, uh, the abominable snowman, of course, wanted to love him and snuggle him and call him George, and this was painful for Daffy, so he throws Bugs under the bus. But his quote, now that we have that context, is, Poor Bugs. But anyway you look at it, it's better that he should suffer. After all, it was me or him. And obviously it couldn't be me. It's a simple matter of logic. I'm not like other people. I can't stand pain. It hurts me. Seems obvious when you say it out loud, but this Daffy Duck quote is not a good way to think about the cross. Uh, with today's text, we see clearly that Jesus is like other people in his suffering. Uh, we begin here to see Jesus hurting, uh, see his pain. Up to this point, uh, Luke has really emphasized how Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control even of the moment of his own arrest. Even his own death and suffering is under his control as Christ himself said, he lays down his life willingly. No one forces him to do this. But that doesn't mean that the sacrifice is without cost. Jesus endures the punishment we deserve, and this includes the pain and the suffering that we deserve. In other words, at this point in Luke, some of those preliminaries, the lead up to the suffering of Christ is over. And today we begin to look uh, seriously at the suffering of Christ. And so since we are at this turning point in the book of Luke, it's a good place to consider how we think about the sacrifice of Christ. And there are two points of view, two ways we might look at this. Do we see Jesus as our example or do we see Jesus as our substitute? And at first glance, those things might seem to be contradictory. If we look at Jesus as our substitute, that means we see that Jesus did precisely what we could not and would not do. He did what we must never even presume to be capable of doing. He bore the wrath for sin. He took our shame and our guilt and our condemnation. He paid the price for our redemption, perfectly obeyed the law of God, perfectly fulfilled all righteousness, perfectly loved God and neighbor, and he did all of this 
for us. He took our place. That's what a substitute does, takes our place. So we put it in terms of maybe this blessed exchange, his robes for mine. He took the filthy rags of my sin and clothed me in his perfect righteousness. And all of this is ours if we simply trust in him. And that is the beating heart of the gospel, right? That Jesus did what we could not do, and he did it for us. His righteousness is credited to us on the basis of his work alone and no works of our own. It's very important to emphasize this. The gospel does not give us some new to-do list. The gospel is good news that Christ has already checked off every last box on the to-do list for us. He didn't come to update the law for us, but to obey the law for us, not to dumb down the law into something that we could keep, but to fulfill it and set us free from its condemnation. On the other hand, while it's true that Jesus bore the cross for us, suffered and died alone, he also did tell his followers to take up your cross daily and follow him. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Paul, of course, in Philippians 2, tells us to follow the example of Christ's humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who he goes on to say emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and describes how he went to the cross for us. Romans 8, 29 says God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of God's Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we are to be conformed to that image that we see of Christ. In the pages of the New Testament, we read about believers sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We have that language. And if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So in the end, these things aren't really contradictory. We see Jesus as both our example and as our substitute. This isn't even about keeping those things in balance, as if we talk about one too much, then we uh, don't do justice to the other. I think we need both of these turned up to 11. We need to remember that Jesus paid it all. In my place, condemned, he stood. If we lose that, we lose everything. We lose the gospel. On the other hand, we need to keep in mind that it's Jesus that sets the pace for how we are to live in this world, in his living and in his dying. The path of discipleship is not strength and success as this world measures such things. The path of discipleship is service, humble service, we saw last week. <clears throat> and the path of discipleship is often suffering, pouring out your life to gain everlasting life. And if we lose that, we might still believe the gospel on paper while living in a way that does not testify to the truth of the gospel. So think of this spiel, or whatever I've just been saying, as a sort of preface to the next few sermons, as we consider how to look at the glory and the horror of the cross. My basic approach would be to consider how each passage shows us Christ, our substitute, and Christ our example, how should we then live if this is how our Savior has lived for us? And we clearly see both Christ our substitute and Christ our example 
in today's sermon text. And might argue that Luke maybe leans, at least in this today's passage, into the substitute, or example rather, a little more, but the substitute is clearly there as well. So we'll talk about Christ, our substitute, first. As we see, Jesus has gone to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, to pray. By the way, in case you're wondering, uh, Luke says the Mount of Olives, but we often hear the word Gethsemane because that's what the other uh, Gospels say to this garden called Gethsemane. So is there a contradiction? Which is it? Well, it's pretty simple. The Garden of Gethsemane is at the base of the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane uh, refers to an olive oil press in Aramaic. Uh, Luke is writing to people who are Gentiles, speak Greek, they don't speak Aramaic, so he leaves out that word that they don't understand and uses Mount of Olives, which they would understand. So this, place t- this takes place at the Garden of the Olive Oil Press, at the base of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the hill of pimentos. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate pity. Pity laughter is always, it's always very much appreciated. Um, tried to have the AI write some jokes, but it wasn't any better. So, so Jesus arrives at the place uh, where he has gone to pray. He turns to his, his disciples who have apparently followed along voluntarily. He tells them to pray, and then he withdraws about a stone's throw away. I think it's significant that he doesn't ask them to join them like we would normally think of, like they're not having a prayer meeting, they're not praying with him, even really for him. He tells them to pray for themselves. What we would normally envision for people of God, followers of God in times of deep distress like this is let's have the disciples gather around Jesus, lay hands on him, pray for him in his distress. We talk about bearing one another's burdens, right? But instead, Jesus goes off by himself, and we are left with this portrait of Jesus standing alone before God in this time of distress. He's struggling with a burden that his closest friends even did not and could not help him to bear. And as verse 45 shows us, you know, they're not really even able to bear their own burdens in prayer. Jesus will find them sleeping for sorrow, another maybe sidebar, but this sleeping for sorrow is, is a helpful detail that Luke adds. Without that detail, you might be wondering why the disciples could possibly be sleeping at a time like this. Are they just lazy? Are they bored? Did they all suddenly come down with some kind of narcolepsy or something? But sleeping for sorrow most likely means that they are so emotionally drained uh, over the events of the past week that they just cannot stay awake. They lack the strength to endure certainly helping Jesus bear his burdens or even their own, even the strength to help themselves. They contribute nothing, and so Jesus is left in this moment of agony alone. So Jesus prays alone, and the content of his prayer uh, is familiar. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup is course, the other place where we clearly see Christ as our substitute. In the Old Testament, a cup is often a metaphor for uh, someone's inheritance or allotted portion. Uh, It can be a positive thing. You know, Psalm 16.5 says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. But it is, of course, often a very dark image. 
both Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about the cup of God's wrath. Ezekiel 23 talks about a cup of horror and desolation. Habakkuk 2, the cup in the Lord's hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So in all of these prophecies, God is describing his wrath upon nations as a cup that they will drink. This is their portion. This is what they inherit um, because of the way that they have lived. So Jesus acknowledges that this bitter cup that he is to drink, that is to come on the cross, is his portion. He has been sent to drink the cup of God's wrath in the place of his followers. To them, just a few verses ago, uh, he had just given the cup of the new covenant in his blood, right? And now for them, he takes the cup of horror and desolation. And so we clearly see Christ as our substitute. This is the blessed exchange. All the consequences of our rebellion, all the shame and guilt and condemnation and pain and the death that we have earned are poured into one cup. And Jesus took that cup from the Father's right hand and drank down every last drop of it. And by doing so, he is able to present us then with the cup of the new covenant in his blood. We discussed a few weeks ago, he's brought us into table fellowship with God. A covenant at its heart is a relationship. This is a new and unbreakable relationship with God. It is unbreakable because all the consequences for breaking fellowship with God have already been poured out on Christ. Our iniquities are forgiven, our sins are forgotten, and we are reconciled to God. He is our God and we are his people. We know God and he knows us from the greatest to the least of us. And this has all been taken care of by Jesus on your behalf. Trust in his work, receive him by faith, and you have in him this perfect substitute. But of course, again, that doesn't mean that there is nothing left to do in the Christian life, right? Certainly doesn't mean that the followers of Jesus have no place for prayer. Jesus encourages, instructs, commands his followers to pray. A few chapters ago in the parable of the persistent widow, he taught that parable so that they might always pray and never lose hope. And in this very passage, Jesus tells his followers to pray. The text begins and ends with instruction from Jesus to his disciples to pray that you might not enter into temptation. And then Jesus goes to pray, and though, as we said, he goes away from them to pray, so he is praying alone, he also is only a stone's throw away, which, you know, depending on your arm, is not very far. He goes to pray in a way that they can still see and they can still hear him pray. He's consciously there to set an example for them of prayer, a model for prayer in difficult times. And this is a model that those followers will certainly need in their own lives in the years to come. And it's a model that you and I need as well. So this text does show us Christ, our example, Christ, our example for prayer, wrestling with God in difficult times. And I think it's actually a model that brings us great freedom as we come to God and cast our cares upon him. 
So first, Christ's example gives us the freedom to pray even for things that we know aren't going to happen, right? We see this both in Jesus' example and, in a certain sense, looking at his explicit instruction to the disciples as well. He tells them to pray that they might not enter into temptation, or trial is another way you could translate that same word. And Jesus himself prays that the Father would take away the cup, the trial that he's facing. And we know that neither of those requests are, in an absolute sense, granted. Trials and temptations come. Uh, certainly the disciples go on to serve as apostles, and they encounter great trials. First Peter, again, says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials and temptations are part of life, sometimes even necessary. And we're absolutely certain that the cup of God's wrath is by no means going to be taken away from Christ, right? He came to drink it. He is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world. This was God's immutable will from eternity past. And, and even Christ himself lays down his life willingly. So why does Jesus pray for this cup to be removed? One noted theologian of the past, this time not Daffy Duck, uh, John Calvin actually puts it this way, there would be no absurdity in supposing that Christ, agreeably to the custom of the godly, leaving out of view divine purpose, committed to the bosom of the Father his desire which troubled him. That means even knowing the divine purposes of God, there still is this weight that he is bearing. There still is this desire. Jesus didn't have a death wish. He didn't want suffering and death for its own sake. His suffering was genuinely suffering that he knew was going to come. And so he commits that natural instinct, natural desire to not suffer, commits that desire to his father. So the model Jesus gives for us is a bold and honest prayer. We take our desires to God. We can take to him desires that trouble us, even if we're pretty sure the answer is going to be no. You're pretty sure that this path is the path that God is calling you to lead. Still take those desires to God. Uh, another way to put it, um, maybe just another angle on the same uh, point, uh, is that Jesus... His example shows us that experiencing and expressing anxiety is not automatically sinful either. Verse 44 says that Jesus is in agony. Now, you may have heard the idea out there that this word agony uh, doesn't mean anxiety or distress, but some kind of idea of, of conflict or competition. Uh, they base this off the idea, the Greek word here, agony, agonia, comes from a Greek word for a place of athletic competition like an arena and can also refer to the competition itself. Based on that fact, some have said that Jesus isn't really concerned for his own life, uh, but he's becoming a valiant and victorious prayer warrior. He's a struggling hero, something like that. You have to say it in that voice, so get the idea. But there are two problems with that interpretation. We, uh, we define words not by where they come from, but by how they're actually used, right? I've probably made this point before, you know, the word nice comes from a Latin word that means ignorant, but normally when we're calling somebody nice, we're not calling them ignorant, unless you want to do that in just kind of a veiled way now, you can insult people and they don't know about it. Um, 
you know, something, something my wife would do, but um, sorry, no, no, she's, she's sweet. I didn't say that. Um, so that's one problem. That's not how the word is actually used in Greek. It clearly means anxiety and distress, and you can definitely see that by comparing Luke's account to Matthew and Mark. They use words like greatly distressed, troubled or overwhelmed, and sorrowful to d- describe what Jesus is going through. So anxiety is a good description. We maybe hesitate to use it because we think of those passages where Jesus says, do not worry, you know, this, this command maybe, uh, or it's certainly a verb in imperative mood that says, do not worry. And here he seems to be worried, but I, I said this before, I think we need to be more careful than that. Uh, do not worry might be an invitation rather than a command. Anxiety in some cases certainly could be an indicator that you're not trusting God, but here Jesus trusts himself to God's will and is still just, he's beyond anxious. Some aspects of his anxiety are sheer physical reactions to what's coming. He sweats blood. There is a rare medical condition, you've probably heard this, where under extreme stress, blood pressure can spike, cause Uh, capillaries to burst in sweat glands and cause blood to become mixed with the sweat. And some commentators, I don't don't know why I bother getting into this kind of boring detail probably, but whatever, I'll do it anyway. Some commentators have said, you know, well, hold on a minute. You know, it just says his sweat was like blood, doesn't say it was blood. And so maybe it just means that his sweat formed large droplets like blood that fell on the ground. I don't know whether blood is known for forming bigger droplets than just sweat on its own or or what, or I tend to think it's just splitting hairs, but either way, Jesus is experiencing intense distress, is the point, and it is affecting him on a physical level, as all stress affects you on a physical level. So, for Jesus, again, perfect submission does not necessarily mean that all is at rest. He submits to God's will, but the agony is still there. He's faced with painful, stressful circumstances, and that is the severest understatement we could ever made. Christ is undergoing a greater agony here than we can imagine. And in his human nature, Jesus reacts emotionally and physically to those circumstances. Let me take this even a step further. Notice where the agony comes into the picture in this passage. It's after God sends this angel to strengthen him. He prays, take this cup away. The answer he gets is not taking the cup away, but giving, sending this angel to come and to strengthen him. And then it's after that that he is in agony and prays more earnestly. The intensity of his prayer is escalated after this angel comes to strengthen him. So what if... Sometimes God's answer to prayer is not taking away our distress, but giving us the strength to take the full weight of our sorrows, the full weight of our cares to him in prayer. What if when you're up late at night with your cares and concerns swirling around in your head, keeping you from sleeping, what if faith isn't always meant to enable you to just let it go and easily fall asleep, but sometimes to stay awake to cast those cares on God. I'm not saying that's always the case. For Psalm 4, David says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you make me dwell in safety. But sometimes staying awake, crying out to God, might be the right thing to do. Rather than coming from unbelief, that might be where faith 
is strengthened. At the very least, I'll, I'll say, you know, in those times when you are um, awake and uh, in your cares, grief, anxiety, unable to sleep, sleep is a gift from God, certainly, but not always granted, you don't need guilt piled on automatically, even if you do need to trust in God. The way to do that is to take those cares and concerns to him in prayer. So from this model, we learn that we can take our pain and grief, anxiety to God as pain, grief, and anxiety, because that's what we see Christ our Savior doing here. We don't have to achieve a state of inner peace before we go to God in prayer and have all of our emotions sorted out. And we won't always achieve a state of inner peace even through prayer. We might sometimes, but you might not always. And that doesn't mean that you have failed in prayer. Whether we feel better, quote-unquote, in that moment or not, we can and should be persistent in taking our cares and concerns to God. And the book of Psalms modeled this as well. That's part of why we started that experiment. Maybe not experiment, but practice discipline a while ago of just singing through some of the psalms as a church. So we see the full range of human emotions in the psalms, don't we? We certainly see triumphant joy and peaceful rest, but we also see grief and anxiety and even anger taken to God in prayer. Of course, this is hard for us to figure out uh, because we are sinful creatures. Jesus is without sin. You and I are not. Sometimes it's hard to tell if this anxiety or this anger is, is sinful. Sometimes I'm not sure when I'm praying if I'm casting my cares on God or if I'm confessing sins to God when I tell him about what I'm wrestling with in my heart. But the good news is you don't have to have all that figured out before you talk to your Heavenly Father. You know, the difference between what Jesus is doing here and what, this, and, and what this, and the psalmists are doing, the difference between that and you think of like the Israelites in that generation where they're grumbling uh, about God and you brought us out here to kill us. The difference is that the Israelites were going to go back to Egypt and Jesus is set on going to the cross. He is still going to do God's will. He submits himself to God's plans and purpose. Uh, that's, that's primary. If it be your will, not my will but yours, right? But from that stance then, Jesus is able to take his cares, his concerns, his anxiety, his pain to God. And we are free to follow Jesus' example in this. And the reason we are free to take Jesus as our example is because Jesus is our substitute. I'll conclude with this thought. If you look at the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Again, that is substitution, right? He became like us so he could stand before God in our place, making atonement for our sins, what no merely human high priest could do. But in the next breath, the author of Hebrews says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he is like other people, because he did endure pain, he is able to help us in our pain. As a faithful high priest, he stands before God on our behalf. And that means that through him, 
we can offer our prayers to God. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, he says, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. So in Christ, we have a high priest who knows what it is to suffer, and he suffered for us, to make us righteous and holy in the sight of God. So if you have received Christ simply through trusting in him, there is no need to hide yourself from God any longer. He is your heavenly father who knows you and loves you fully. He knows your heart, knows your thoughts, knows your anxieties, knows your every need, every hair on your head is counted. And he sent your son to bear your griefs, to carry your sorrows. So trust Jesus as your substitute and trust him as your great high priest. And go to him in the time of need. Cast your cares on him. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, once again, we give you thanks that we are able through this wonderful gift of your Son, to call you Father, to relate to you as a Father, a perfect, good, and gracious, and loving Father who cares for us so deeply we cannot fathom. You care about every detail of our lives, even more than we do, every tear we shed, every worry, every care, every concern. You do care about our lives. And even though we know that trials are sometimes necessary, it is sometimes necessary for us to be grieved. And um, we can't always see why. Uh, we can know that you do love us and care for us because you gave us Christ, your Son. When we are tempted to doubt your love for us, remind us of the cross. And help us then to know and sense that, that the gospel is true, that what we have confessed is true that you do love us and care for us. We are in so many ways tempted to hide before you, to feel like we need to get our acts together before we can come to you when the answer, or even when we know that our desires and anger and resentment and bitterness and anxiety, even when we know those things are sinful, we have a great high priest who has atoned for those sins uh, that we can take those things to you in prayer. So help us to believe what your word has said to us, that you love us and that we are perfectly accepted in Christ. Help us to turn to you each day 
May it be our joy, even through the hardships, to have that fellowship and peace with God our Father. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.